Can you tell me where we are? We are in the sanctuary of Lilydale First Baptist Church. You know, it's a modest sanctuary, but uh, we try to keep it up. Yeah. Thank you. Lilydale First Baptist Church is in the Roseland area on the far south side of Chicago. Reverend Alvin Love has been the pastor there for over 30 years. What was the church like in 1985? It was quite a bit different than it is today, (laughs) right? There was a lot of crime. People would break in. We could not keep a PA system in this church, and we could not keep silverware in the kitchen. In 1985, Love was a relatively young pastor with an aging congregation, struggling to get people involved in the community. One day, this new frustrated reverend is sitting in the church all by himself. Two different people had come to the door, rang the bell, asking for money to get something to eat. And I gave it to them. After the second one left, my office is is all windows to the street. And so I see this skinny guy coming up. And the first thing came into my head was, no, no, not another one. (laughs) The young man's clothes and shoes were a little worn, but he had his sleeves rolled up like he was ready to get to work. And he didn't ask for money. He just wanted 15 minutes with Reverend Love to talk about the community. I said, oh, great. Come on, let's go. I guess I'll show you my office. Reverend Love escorted him to his office. I was sitting right here. And so he sat there, and I turned the chair around, and we just sat there and talked. Yeah. And of course, he gave me the, you know, that now famous spiel. My name is Obama. You know, they call me Alabama or your mama, but it's Obama. <laughs> and, you know, you're wondering where I got this strange accent from. You know, my mother's from Kansas and my dad's from Kenya. Of course, he's talking about former President Barack Obama, the man who would later deliver that introduction at hundreds and hundreds of campaign events. My mother's from Kansas, my dad's from Kenya. It became a very successful routine, but in 1985 at Lilydale First Baptist, it bombed. That stick of his did not resonate with me at all. And I didn't know at the time that that was his stick until I heard it several times after that. As I look back on it, I think he did it more for his own nerves than he did to disarm people. He assumed that he was an outsider coming in. 23 years later, that young man who was mistaken for a panhandler outside of a church would be elected the first African-American president of the United States. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Jen White, and this is Making Obama. It's been over a year since President Obama left the White House. No matter what your politics may be, we can all agree that this past year has been chaotic. There are divisions within both the major parties. They're trying to figure out who they are and where their next leaders will come from. So we're going to look at where this leader came from and explore how Barack Obama made the transition from the south side of Chicago to the front of a national movement. It's an extremely cynical time right now, and and for good reason. But people were very cynical about politics back then, that we could someday elect a black president. We did not talk about what it would mean to him to be president. We talked about what it would mean to everybody else. And it wasn't about him. That makes you emotional now? Yeah. We're going to tell the story of the rise of Barack Obama in detail, and we're going to talk to Barack Obama himself. Well, maybe a story like mine could have happened someplace else. My story couldn't have happened anywhere else. 
We also talked to the people who knew him, battled with him, and helped him find his way through Chicago's unique brand of rough-and-tumble politics. Do you think President Obama's story could have happened in a different city? Not a chance. Why not? Not, not even close. He said, I embarrassed him on the Senate floor, and if I ever did it again, he kicked my ass. Barack overrode us and said, you know what? If I'm going to win, I'm going to win. Let it roll. We start with an idealistic newcomer who just wanted a job. He told me straight out he came to Chicago because of the Harold Washington election. We look at a political newbie who had a lot to learn. We had a fundraiser for him here in this apartment. And I must say, he was terrible. He felt like everybody had a right to run. And we were like, this is Chicago, dude. There were some moments of real doubt and utter failure. We we got our ass kicked. And they felt that Barack should just wait his turn. How clear was it from Mrs. Obama that this was the last shot? This was the last race he was going to be able to run? Crystal clear. We see what it takes to make that last shot really count. He said, you have the power to make a United States senator. I said, do you know of anybody I can make? And Brock said, me. (laughs) (laughs) And we get a glimpse of the start of a new movement. He finished the first take and he got to, yes, we can. And he said, yes, we can. He said, is that too corny? Hello, Chicago. If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, who still wonders if the dream of our founders is alive in our time, who still questions the power of our democracy, tonight is your answer. Part one. The man in the background. So were you the man who brought Barack Obama to Chicago? Yes. And how did that happen? He sent me a resume. Jerry Kelman is a community organizer, and he's one of the people who played a critical role in Obama's early days in Chicago. Chicago really is the centerpiece for so many reasons. And uh, I don't think Barack becomes president if he doesn't come to Chicago. I don't think that would have ever happened for a lot of reasons. In this first episode, you'll hear from the people who worked with Obama during his time as a community organizer on the south side of Chicago. This is the period when he first grows roots in the city, and it's also the time when Obama became active in trying to create social change. He's working as an advocate, putting pressure on the system from the outside. But within a few years, Obama's got his eyes set on entering public life and creating change from the inside. In the early 80s, Jerry Kelman led an organization that tried to help communities on the far south side of Chicago. These neighborhoods were impacted by the collapse of the steel industry and the severe loss of jobs that went along with it. One of the neighborhoods that Jerry was working in was a public housing development on the south side. Altgeld Gardens is a sprawling collection of two-story row houses that spreads over almost 200 acres of land. There's not a lot of public transportation out there. You cross a bridge and there's nothing but these industrial scenes of steel mills and heaps of industrial waste. And then you have to go quite a ways to get to uh, other neighborhoods. And uh, so it's very isolated. As Obama describes Altgeld, it was a dump and a place to house poor blacks. Jerry's organization operated out of multiple Catholic churches throughout the region. 
The church in Altgeld Gardens that they worked with was called Our Lady of the Gardens. I was like that volunteer mother that did everything. I did some substitute teaching there. We did Girl Scouts. One of my friends told me, I thought you had gone Girl Scout crazy. You know, but we were very involved in things that went on in the community. Loretta Augustine Heron was a very involved parishioner at the church, and she worked with Jerry Kelman. Loretta witnessed the impact of the steel mill closures firsthand. It just seemed like things were really going down. A lot of these people had been in their jobs for years. There was a sense of desperation in the community. Jerry Kelman's organization was working across very different communities. He was in predominantly black neighborhoods on the far south side of Chicago, like Altgeld Gardens, and he was in predominantly white suburbs. Now everyone was feeling the impact of the steel mill closures. But in a lot of black communities, that job loss was compounded by a long history of racist policies around housing, education, and economic opportunity. So in order to focus on those neighborhoods, including Ottengeld Gardens, a whole new organization was created called the DCP, the Developing Communities Project. But the leadership of DCP was white, and when white organizers came into African-American neighborhoods, there was a real issue of trust. Loretta Augustine. We needed someone who could not only relate to us, but looked like us. We need more black leaders. And in this project, we insist. So Jerry was basically issued that ultimatum. Find a black community organizer. It was no easy task to find someone. So I put ads out on the Detroit Free Press, the New York Times, obviously the Chicago Tribune, and something called Community Jobs, which Barack describes as a do-gooder publication. And he saw it in the New York Public Library. The ad was titled, Two Minority Jobs in Chicago. Under duties, it read, help supervise all organizing on the far south side of Chicago, an area which is 95% black, serve as consultant to local parishes, recruit and train leaders in listening skills, research, strategic planning, public action skills, and with local clergy, theological reflection. Obama sent Jerry a resume, and Jerry was impressed. So impressed that he traveled to meet Barack in person in New York City, where Obama had just graduated from Columbia University. Did you get a sense for why he wanted to come to Chicago specifically? He didn't. I think once the opportunity was there, it seemed like a a, a good thing to do. It was a major city, major politics, major African-American community. But Barack had been trying for a number of months to get an organizing job, and he didn't get one. So believe it or not... Barack Obama could not get a job <laughs> as a community organizer. And mine was the first offer that he, that he got. What was that offer? The money? Yeah. Oh, I, I think it's 12000 a year. He didn't stay there. but uh, And then he said, I'm going to need a car. I said, okay, I'll give you 2000 huh. <laughs> That's quite a deal. Yeah. Right, right. So, uh, right. so, yeah. You might be asking yourself, Why on earth would someone with a degree from an Ivy League school take that offer and go to a city he didn't know anything about? It seems pretty impulsive. In his memoir, Dreams from My Father, Obama writes about the different backgrounds of his Kenyan father and his white American mother. He talks about the void left in his life by his largely absent father, Barack Obama Sr., 
In the book, he also writes about his reasoning for becoming a community organizer as a naive decision, motivated by images of the civil rights movement that swirled in his head as a young man. Such images became a form of prayer for me, bolstering my spirits, channeling my emotions in a way that words never could. First federal forces into Mississippi in this first week of the Freedom Summer Project. They told me that I wasn't alone in my particular struggles and that communities had never been a given in this country, at least not for blacks. Communities had to be created, fought for, tended like gardens. They expanded or contracted with the dreams of men. And in the civil rights movement, those dreams had been large. Let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. That was my idea of organizing. It was a promise of redemption. Somehow, the idea of community organizing in Chicago in the 80s was connected in his head to organizing in the South in the 60s. Obama talks about his simple impulse to become a community organizer as a way to connect himself to something bigger and to help cement his identity as an African-American. With those images and ideals in his head, he drove west on the highways from New York to Chicago. The 23-year-old Barack Obama arrived on Saturday, July 27, 1985. You You have won a pair of Bear season tickets. 107.5 FM, WGCI, the hottest ticket in town, Luther Vandross. I arrived in Chicago in July, and the sun sparkled through the deep green trees. It's an okay day today, sunny, high around 80, a little lower near the lake. Kick it off now with Careless Whisper and Wham! And as I drove, I remembered. WBEZ, Chicago. I remembered the whistle of the Illinois Central, bearing the weight of the thousands who had come up from the South so many years before, the black men and women and children, dirty from the soot of the rail cars, clutching their makeshift luggage, all making their way to Canaan land. Tell me about Barack Obama's interview. (laughs) Well... Obama was brought in to meet the people he'd work with in DCP, the Developing Communities Project. Loretta Augustine. Jerry brought in Barack and introduced him. The room was rather quiet, all except for my counterpart, Yvonne Lloyd, who leaned over to me and said, Rhett, they will chew him up and spit him out in Art Gale. Because he was so young. He was so young. But that young man impressed. I mean, I've interviewed people before where they have taken your questions and jumbled them up and thrown them back at you. But he was straightforward. He answered our questions honestly, things that he didn't know he admitted he didn't know. As we talked with him, I think we all realized that this was someone we could work with and that we could make progress with. But as it turns out, progress would take time. Early on, Obama's main job was to connect DCP to the area's black churches. This was where the white organizers really struggled, convincing naturally suspicious pastors to work with their organization. Obama is brand new. He doesn't really know anybody. But at Lilydale First Baptist Church in the Roseland neighborhood, he finally met a pastor who wanted to sit down and talk. His conversation 
you know, impressed me more than anything else. Reverend Alvin Love told Barack about growing up in Mississippi and being bused to segregated schools. Obama talked about how much he admired the civil rights movement and how he wished he could have been a part of it. He asked me at the end of that interview if he could get a meeting together with pastors of like mind who were interested in doing something, would I be willing to come to the meeting? I said, by all means, count me in. DCP knew that if they went through the churches, they could get to parishioners who would want to get involved in community issues. But you didn't get to the people unless you got to the pastor. And some of those pastors were not exactly receptive. Reverend Love remembers one meeting in particular that went pretty badly. When we got into that meeting, even one of the guys who had been in one of our earlier planning meetings got up and just basically said, you know, we don't need you to come around here and tell us what to do. Young, Columbia-educated New York guy with Jewish money behind you, we don't, we don't need you. That meeting went nowhere, except for the fact that after it was over, that's one of the things I really respected about Brock. He didn't get angry. I'm sure he was fuming on the inside, but he didn't really show it. And at the end of that meeting, he called us back together and he said, what went wrong here tonight? All right. And how do we fix it next time? Coming up on Making Obama, the new guy gets better at his job and gets a taste of success. He worked as a community organizer. (laughs) What? Much later, while campaigning for president and occasionally while serving as president, Barack Obama's critics mocked the three years he spent as a community organizer. Maybe this is the first problem on the resume. It was implied that community organizing wasn't a real job. It was sort of a squishy, do-goodery hobby, not actual work. Unlike Barack Obama, uh, I was not a community organizer before I was elected to the Senate. No, the president has never created a job. He's never even had a real job, for God's sakes. I guess a small-town mayor is sort of like a community organizer, except that you have actual responsibilities. I moved to Chicago and worked with churches to set up job training programs for the unemployed and after-school programs for youth and to try to deal with asbestos in homes of poor people. As a presidential candidate, Obama was a bit perplexed by the criticism. Community service work, that's what I did between the ages of 24 and 27 before I went to law school. I would think that's what we want all our young people to do. So what is community organizing? His name is Saul Alinsky, and there are still many to whom the name is meaningless. But to millions now, he is looked on as a savior. Now, to learn anything about community organizing, you start with Saul Alinsky. A native Chicagoan, Alinsky was known for organizing workers in meatpacking plants, and he spent most of his life trying to improve the living conditions of poor communities across the country. All of Obama's mentors in community organizing were shaped by the Alinsky tradition. But the Alinsky name is conspicuously missing from the Chicago section of Dreams from My Father. Partly because Obama would later fall away from Alinsky's ideas. But maybe it's also because Alinsky was an uncompromising, self-proclaimed radical. You see, the moment they say that I'm dangerous to them, to the people down here, they figure, well, geez, this guy may be able to win. 
Otherwise, they wouldn't say he was dangerous. The poverty program was a prized piece of political pornography. Change means movement, and movement means friction, and friction means heat, and heat means controversy. People do not get power except when they take it. Alinsky died in 1972, but his rules and theories became gospel among community organizers. Like Obama, Chicago organizer Mike Kruglick was trained by Alinsky's disciples. I was very impressed by those guys. To me, they seemed to have a different way of looking at things. That was very analytical and hard-boiled and really trying to be effective as opposed to just bullshitting people. We could get pretty deep in the weeds explaining Alinskyan theory. But basically, it's about finding shared interest among diverse people within a community and then aggressively leveraging that interest to create positive change. We had to learn the difference between problems and an issue. You know, we had a lot of problems, but we had to kind of boil it down to an issue that was solvable, that we could identify who we would go to to resolve the problem. So that that took some time. Loretta Augustine lived in the neighborhood around Altgeld Gardens. Altgeld was built on a dump. It was a lot of pollution out there. We had high rates of cancer, asthma, This was my self-interest, preservation of my family in this community. In the spring of 1986, that self-interest found a big issue that Obama and DCP could apply the Alinsky Handbook to. We were going to one of the parent meetings uh, over at the children's building when one of the mothers came in and she was talking about these men in these little space suits and stuff who were doing this work over there. Loretta is talking about those puffy hazmat suits that completely cover your body from head to toe. These guys did not blend in walking around all Gill Gardens. Reverend Alvin Love. And they asked, uh, I don't know who it was that asked, I think probably Loretta, asked, you know, what were they doing? They said, well, we're removing asbestos from the offices. But they weren't removing it from where people live. And that's how we discovered the asbestos. Turns out the public housing units in Altgeld Gardens were full of asbestos. The stuff could cause all sorts of health problems, including lung cancer. And so we took that on as an issue. Obama and DCP joined up with other local activists who had already been working on the issue. They determined that the Chicago Housing Authority, the CHA, had the responsibility and power to remove the asbestos. They wrote letters to the CHA and the mayor's office and finally scheduled a meeting. Obama and about a dozen residents and activists rented a school bus and went to the Chicago Housing Authority's headquarters downtown. The group nicknamed themselves Obama's Army. Zero Smith, the director of CHA, made them wait for hours until they gave up and left without meeting him. Public pressure, bad press, and back-channel conversations finally led to a meeting with officials from CHA and the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development. The agencies made them an offer. They said, well, we only have a certain pot of money. We can either remove the asbestos or fix the bathtubs in the apartments, but we can't do both. So you, you say, I either, either breathe clean air and go without taking a bath 
or take a bath and have my lungs <laughs> full of uh, asbestos. It, it was it was crazy. They turned that deal down. Eventually, CHA Director Zero Smith agreed to appear at a meeting at Our Lady of the Gardens Church. Obama arranged for 700 residents to be there. It's the middle of the summer, and 700 people are packed in the church gym. Mr. Smith strolled into the meeting over an hour late. Things got heated quickly. He came out to that community meeting like, I'm going to tell you guys what we're going to do, and you're just going to listen and take it. And, and that meeting did not go well. It probably took all of Barack's organizing skills to, to, to hold that together, to keep it from becoming a riot. <laughs> so, <laughs> Zero Smith fled the meeting. Now, Obama was a bit embarrassed by the way things went down, but Alinsky and organizing was all about confronting the powerful to get things done. Eventually, they did move people out of units. They did take the asbestos out. They did own up to it. All told, the asbestos removal took several years, but it did happen, and by community organizing standards, it was a victory. In the meantime, Obama and DCP turned to the biggest issue in the neighborhoods, jobs. Turns out the city already had something planned for that. Reverend Alvin Love. We heard that Mayor Washington was going to put a jobs training facility on the south side. We also heard that it was going to be much farther south than our neighborhood. And so we made a case that uh, that facility should be in Roseland. And uh, we took that to City Hall. And they got it. That job training center was moved to the Roseland neighborhood. It was a relatively quick, concrete victory. And they celebrated with a rally and ribbon-cutting ceremony at the new facility on South Michigan Avenue. DCP was really proud. And uh, it's interesting, the mayor actually showed up to that announcement. I was so impressed. Well, Harold Washington was somebody who, he was just a a superstar, and I was the, at all. Reverend Love and Loretta Augustine are talking about Mayor Harold Washington, Chicago's first black mayor. This event was two weeks before he'd be elected for a second term, largely on the strength of the black vote in the city. Now, we looked, but there really aren't a lot of images of Obama in action while he was working as a community organizer. But we found a photo from this ribbon-cutting event. The charismatic Harold Washington is in the center. People are clustered around him, smiling and waiting to shake his hand. Loretta Augustine is standing beside the mayor, escorting him through the crowd. In the far left corner of the photo, a young Barack Obama peers over the heads of the people in front of him. His attention is fixed on Washington. His expression is serious and thoughtful. Barack did what he normally does. He stayed in the background. I don't think he said a word that whole meeting from the microphone. It turns out this strategic invisibility is an essential part of Alinsky-styled community organizing. The people on the South Side don't think Barack did anything. I should have given the guy a raise. He was... The people are not supposed to feel like they're dependent upon the organizer. Community organizer Greg Galuzzo helped mentor Obama in Alinsky methods. A community organizer in the Alinsky tradition is paid to allow other people to become leaders. Now, an Alinsky organizer is never a potted plant. (laughs) We yell, scream, and swear if we think the people are fucking up. 
But if there's ever a meeting that an organizer organizes, you'd never know who the organizer was. Barack accepted that. His name wasn't ever in the newspaper, and he was not on the stage. And maybe this is at the root of all that criticism of this part of Obama's resume. There aren't those photos of him leading marches or making fiery speeches from a podium. There aren't any sound bites of him calling public officials to account. The public record of his activity is really minimal, and that makes the whole job seem squishy. You have to talk to the people who were on the ground with him to understand what he was really doing. But Obama was having serious doubts about how worthwhile it was to be that man in the background. That's next on Making Obama. Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, let's go. Who are you? I'm Jen White, and this is Making Obama. Well, we became friends. I don't know if he would have agreed, but I certainly would have described him as my best friend for a period of years in the late 80s. Mike Kruglick is the organizer who Barack Obama came in to replace at the Developing Communities Project. Although Mike was 15 years older than Barack, the two of them really hit it off. Mike has a warm personality and a self-described working-class presence. He tells it like it is. He also has a degree from Princeton. All that stuff is mixed into the character, and that was a character that Obama appreciated. Up to this point in Obama's life, he had moved around a lot. Hawaii, Indonesia, New York. But in Chicago, he found a place to plant roots through work that was fulfilling and colleagues who embraced him. Mike is a native to the city, and he schooled Obama in how to become a Chicagoan. Went to some jazz joints, went to see some blues music, things like that. And becoming a Chicagoan apparently has a lot to do with sports. Mike has a clear memory of Obama on January 26, 1986, one of the greatest moments in Chicago sports history, with its own distinctive song. We are the best shuffling Going long to golf. He's there, and it's a big game for the Bears. My son Harry, Obama, my wife and myself watched the Super Bowl together, and Obama was very upset at the time. I think everyone's rooting for this man. They're chanting Walter, Walter. Because Coach Ditka did not put Walter Payton in to score a touchdown when he handed the ball off to Refrigerator Perry. Perry! That I remember. Walter Payton, Mike Ditka, Hungry Chicago, finally champions. For whatever reason, Obama trusted me. I trusted him. He confided a lot of things. There's some things he didn't confide. There's some things he did confide, okay, which I am not at liberty to confide. <laughs> but one thing that Mike did tell us is that despite being really good at his job, at some point Obama started having issues with his bosses. He questioned whether he was being sold a bill of goods or not. The players that Obama dealt with 
may also have had a tendency not only to be aggressive and demanding and challenging, but from time to time to say something that turned out to be full of shit once you actually actually took a closer look at exactly what it was all about. You have to know people who are of the Alinsky culture to understand their way. It's a way people tend to draw to it who are of a certain nature. I don't think that he was of that nature. <laughs> John McKnight, an academic and community organizer, had strongly shifted away from Alinsky theory in his career. He says that Alinsky organizers tended to be a bit macho, confrontational, and someone's face with a chip on their shoulder. McKnight thinks some of that comes from the theory, but also from Saul Alinsky himself. I didn't like him as a person. The tough guy image that he represented became a way a lot of the young people who are organizers my age thought you had to be. Like, you know, we're people with a lot of savvy and we know what we're doing. And, uh, <laughs> a lot of people just ate that up, but I think Brock thought there was more than that to the world. Obama wanted the same kind of grand-scale changes that Alinsky organizers wanted. But he began to question whether Alinsky and organizing would actually get him there. You have to understand, Brock was the most serious young man I had ever met. And I know part of the problems in organizing was very frustrating for him because it had to be frustrating for a young man in a city that he did not grow up in, trying to get a handle on issues that belong to other people. You learn that progress is slow, but what you want is progress that lasts. And a lot of people have commented about Art Gale, it not lasting in Art Gale. It's true, but not true. It's true that the public housing units no longer have asbestos in them. The employment initiatives helped some residents. But it's also true that despite Obama's and DCP's efforts, Allgeld Gardens is still really isolated, with a serious lack of access to city resources. But if you zoom in, some people really did feel empowered joining Obama in taking on the system. A good example is a road trip that Obama took with a group of parents from DCP in the summer of 1987. Loretta Augustine was with him. On the way down, Barack empowered them. Obama packed the parents into a bus headed for Springfield, the state capital of Illinois. They planned on demanding school reform directly from legislators in person. He divided us in groups, and we discussed lobbying techniques. Each group was given a name of senators or representatives that they were to contact, and the parents were like, they're not going to talk to us, and we're nobody, and we're this, that, or the other. The parents walked into the imposing marbled Capitol building and sent notes into the chambers. To their shock, the legislators actually came out to listen to the group's demands. That in and of itself was a big deal to the parents from the far south side of Chicago. When we got out of there, those parents were so empowered. It was like, we can move the world, you know? It was like, man, I never thought we could do this. (laughs) 
It felt empowering for the parents, but in reality, they didn't get everything they wanted. Part of the reason for that trip was to secure a half million dollars in state funding for a program aimed at preventing kids from dropping out of high school. In the end, they received only a fraction of that money. The program didn't go nearly as far as they wanted. According to Loretta Augustine, what started to become true to Obama through all this community organizing work was this basic reality. No matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we worked, every issue we had led us to the door of a politician. John McKnight trained hundreds of community organizers in the 80s, but he and Barack became close. John and his wife even invited Obama to their cabin in Wisconsin. I don't think I ever invited any trainee or, or student there. It was, sort of, it was a getaway. But I was so impressed with Barack and really liked him a lot that I invited him to come up and spend weekends with us. He came and me and he said, uh, you know, I think I have learned how much change you can achieve by this method of organizing in neighborhoods. He said, but I'm interested in do something that will produce more change than neighborhood organizing will achieve. I think the way to do that is to go into public life. So I think in order to do that, I had to become a lawyer. And so I'd like to go to law school. Obama asked John for a recommendation letter. Usually when students would ask John for letters, they brought four or five applications to different law schools. Obama only had one, to the school that his father had attended. He just had a Harvard application. Of course, I said, sure, I'd be glad to write a letter of reference. But you better have yourself some more applications. He said, no, I I want to go to Harvard. I thought his chances were less than 50-50, much less than 50-50, frankly. So when he shared with you his desire to move into public life, how did you feel about that? Well, I said, now, you want to think about this, because if you go into public life, the essence of a political figure's role is essentially to be a compromiser. You've been involved in advocacy where you could take a firm position and there's a lot of uh, satisfaction in that. So you gotta ask yourself, as a person, you now know how it feels to be an advocate. How do you think it would feel to be a compromiser? But I don't think I was dissuading him. I just wanted to say, you probably will have a broader effect. But think about it. Who are you inside? I disagreed 100%. <laughs> Barack eventually told Mike Kruglick about Harvard. I said, why do you want to do that? And he said, because I want to be around these type of guys because they understand a lot about power. And I think that I need to understand that so I can help our people. That was his reasoning. I was angry. I was angry. I thought maybe he was going to be a sellout. And I was a little troubled about the notion of going off to Harvard. I thought that maybe I was betraying my ideals and not living up to my values. Obama here speaking in 1994. Uh, I was feeling guilty, 
And this pastor friend of mine who was an older gentleman, he had been in the civil rights struggle for a long time. I went to talk to him. And he said, go, go to Harvard. It'll, it'll be good for you. You'll learn a lot. But one thing, don't let Harvard change you. And I didn't know exactly what he meant because he knew that I didn't come from the streets of Chicago. He, he didn't mean don't let Harvard educate you. He didn't mean that you're not going to meet new people and get new ideas. I think what he meant was don't forget the larger story that you're a part of. He also meant don't misplace your dreams. Obama left Chicago in the summer of 1988 for Harvard. But he would later talk about those three years as a community organizer on the far south side of Chicago, from the age of 24 to 27, as the most important education that he ever received. I think he found real people, <laughs> right? Reverend Alvin Love. I think Chicago will be the place where he found a sense of belonging. Somebody who had been tested in the fire. And once his metal was tested, I think he came to the conclusion I can do this. He was always concerned for us. It's like creating something. This is your baby and you want it to be successful, even if you're going to go somewhere else. I never felt deserted. I felt like this was something he needed to do, but he would be back. We sat down with former President Barack Obama to talk to him about his years in Chicago. How's everybody doing? Doing Good. well. All right. Well. It was one of the first in-depth interviews he'd given since leaving the White House. You know what? You've got to make time for the hometown public <laughs> radio station. But you were on our station. I was. More than I, a few times. I was like we said, place. this podcast isn't about the Obama presidency. So we won't be talking about his years in the Oval Office or President Trump. We're going much further back in time to talk about what happened in this 20-year period when he was making a political career in the city of Chicago. Now, I have to warn you that uh, there may be times where I just say, you know, I just don't remember anything. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's not true. I just, you know, but I, but I just don't know. So so bear with me on that front. No okay. Okay, let's start. Do you think your story could have played out in any other city in America? Or is there something special about Chicago that allowed it to happen there? Well, maybe a story like mine could have happened someplace else. My story couldn't have happened anywhere else. The the cultural pulse of the city, you know, all all these threads and elements, uh, I think, ended up feeding my conception of what politics could be and nourishing it and constantly testing it uh, in ways that uh, I think would not have happened in other places. And, you know, I think that the traditions and spirits of community organizing and grassroots movements from the earliest days of the fights against the daily machine combined with uh, the legacy of Alinsky and the civil rights activism that expressed itself with Dr. King when he came to Chicago and ultimately Harold Washington. Harold Washington. He was the first African-American mayor of Chicago. 
Harold and Obama were both in the city at the same time, but they never got to know each other. However, there is that photo of the two of them in the same room at an event back in 1987. In that image, Obama is watching Mayor Washington very closely. Friend and fellow community organizer Mike Kruglick. You know, there's another path, right, that we talked about. That's the Harold Washington path. In other words, part of the reason that being a DCP organizer was hard was because Harold Washington was the mayor. In other words, you have to challenge the power and resources of the city of Chicago. There's only one problem. The people didn't want to challenge Mayor Washington because they worshipped Mayor Washington. So at a certain point, Obama came to the conclusion that if you can't beat Harold, you got to be Harold. <laughs> Next time on Making Obama. It was a matter of practical uh, Chicago politics. We find out who you need to destroy a machine. Why am I called the assassin? Why am I called that? Because I grew up under Harold. The votes are tallied. Washington, 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 Bird, Washington, Washington. And the stage is set. The Harold Washington race, I think, in many ways, was a foundation on which the Barack Obama career and certainly his ascendancy was built. Making Obama is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Jen White. The producer is Colin McNulty. The executive producers are Joel Meyer and Brendan Banizak, with editing help from Kevin Dawson of Whistledown Productions. Really special thanks to James Edwards, Joe Dassault, Candice Mattel-Khan, Justin Bull, Steve Edwards, Natalie Moore, Ben Calhoun, and our intern, B. Aldridge. Our digital editor is Tricia Bobita. And make sure that you're subscribed to Making Obama on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll be sure not to miss a single episode. While you're there, please give us a rating or a review. And if you want even more Making Obama, go to wbez.org slash Obama. Obama.